Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I think we hear the term burnout a lot. Oh, I'm so burnt out. We use it to say we are tired, that we need a break. But for those in the equine industry, as self-employed business owners, we tend to fight off the feelings of burnout until we hit a breaking point. We don't have time to slow down and process what we are feeling, and we don't get sick days or paid time off. We have owners that rely on us, sometimes too much, to be there for them and their horse, and we can't let them down. So how do we protect ourselves and get the help we need or prevent the issue before it starts? I talked with three people for this episode, starting with Dr. Jenny Susser. I heard about Dr. Jenny from a friend on Facebook who was raving about her approach to sports psychology in the equine world. For those who don't know, sports psychology is the study of how psychological factors affect performance and how participation in sport and exercise affects psychological and physical factors. I thought she would be the perfect person to talk to about burnout in the hoof care industry. So first off, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got into like the sports psychology world and the equine industry? Sure. So. I became a sports psychologist after a a, a pretty successful swimming career. I swam at UCLA and I described myself as a head case, as an athlete. (laughs) So, and I worked with a sports psychologist in briefly in 1987 when I was preparing for the 1988 Olympic trials. And there were very few sports psychologists at the time. It was very taboo. I didn't tell anyone. It was a big secret. It was very weird. Uh, And I think that, uh, you know, my dad was a a very progressive alternative physician. And so he was like, this is a great idea. And I was like, well, what the hell is this? So I wasn't as bought in as I probably should have been. And, but it was an interesting experience. And then I coached at UCLA as the assistant after I retired and completed my eligibility. And then we started working with one of the best sports psychologists in the country and Dr. Bill Parham. And I was like, oh, that's it. I could do that. And so I became a sports psychologist with the idea of working with athletes and hadn't ridden horses in 20 years. Uh, I rode when I was a kid. And then when I was working on my dissertation, I went on one of those city slickers vacations in Wyoming. You know, this is ni- this is like ni- 2000, year 2000, 1999, something like that, a long time ago. And just got bit again by the horse bug. And so started integrating horses back into my life after 20 years. But when I became a sports psychologist, I sort of declared I would not work in the horse world because... I'd seen veterinarians and, you know, most horse care professionals sort of have a problematic relationship with their hobby of horseback riding. (laughs) But I actually met Lendon Gray at one of her D4K winter lectures and just, you know, started talking with her and she's like, would you do a lecture for the kids? And so I did one lecture for the kids and that went so well, would you do a lecture for the parents? And so I did one lecture for the parents and then it just sort of snowballed from there. And it has not taken away 
from my hobby, which I'm really grateful for. So I still have my own personal horses and ride and, and enjoy that just as thoroughly as I did when I refused to work in the equestrian world. <laughs> right. That's great. And yeah, so I, so I've been doing, I've been working with riders now for, gosh, you know, over a decade. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure that you focus on so many different aspects of, you know, being an, an athlete in the equine world. Um, do you see a lot of burnout or even professionals that are dealing with the compassion fatigue side of things? So the interesting thing that I'm pretty consistent about is that the model in the equestrian world is terrible. <laughs> our model for work, our model for care. Uh, it's just a, like, if you look at the way that trainers live, if you look at the way that farriers live, veterinarians, anyone who's a, a horse care professional seems to have terrible, horrific balance in their lives, right? So you're, you're a hoof care professional, so you know this, yeah. you know, and it's, and it's challenging, right? So for, for everyone in the horse care in the horse in the equine industries, it's fee for service, right? You need to to work on a horse in order to get paid. A vet needs to work on a horse in order to get paid. A trainer needs to ride or teach or train a horse in order to get paid. So it's this very um, unfortunate circumstance where if you're not working, you're not getting paid. So people, like I'm down here, I live in Ocala, Florida, and I watch the farriers ramp up for the winter. Like, you know, any farrier that I have ever worked with down here, they're okay over the summer. They start to recover a little bit over the summer. And then as they get into fall, they start to ramp up. But then over the winter months, because so many people come down and the demand increases and it's their time to make their money, they'll work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week and not take a day off for three or four months because it's the for service. It's the opportunity to make that kind of money. And it creates this, this imbalance, this lack of balance and, and fatigue and stress and burnout all the way around simply because you just don't have enough time in your life to eat well, to recover, to exercise, to have social that isn't just, you know, blowing off steam and getting drunk at night or whatever it is. And it's not, but it doesn't tend to be super healthy. So I think that's where where the the entire horse industry is i mean in in the english sports you know um, hunter jumper dressage and eventing at least mondays are sort of this closed day there's no lessons and no riding most barns are closed in the competitive english disciplines on mondays so at least trainers get the day off but grooms don't typically staff managers it's a it's a tough racket Yeah. And I've completely felt that too, where you are sort of, if you don't take control of it, you kind of can let your business run you because like you said, we're getting paid by how much we do. Um, Or, you know, our salary, I should say, depends on how much we do. Uh, So do you have any ways that maybe we can prevent getting to that point of burnout? Well, yes. So burnout was sort of, defined by the World Health Organization over the last couple of years. It's something that I have seen as a, I've done corporate consulting for over a decade. 
and I have watched the burnout increase and increase and increase. And, and then finally somebody called it and said, Hey, you know what, this is what's going on. And it's again, the same type of, of hamster wheel where it's all work, no play makes Jane, Johnny, a dull boy, girl, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. If you are leading a life that is, you know, drastically imbalanced, you are going to suffer physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And then eventually that hits your health. It just does. And, and it's sort of what we're all kind of at the effect of right now. And it's super challenging because to create a life of balance is to go against current culture. You know, like I'm good friends. I have great relationships with my farriers, right? I have a equine podi- a podiatrist, farrier vet, blacksmith that's just brilliant that I work with. And, and then my farrier that comes every week and he's you know they're both just outstanding and i just watch both of them work and work and work and work and work and i'm like you need better balance you need better balance you need better balance (laughs) and it's hard to say no so the the first thing that i find to be the healthiest i know this sounds odd but it's to actually create some type of financial picture for your life because it is the money that drives people to work more. So when you when you don't know what your monthly nut is, right? What your monthly real bills are. And then what you need. Like what do you actually need to pay your bills? And most of the people that I talk with cannot answer that question. Right? It's just money in, money out. They don't even know what their budget is. They don't even know what they typically make a month or what their costs are you know like as a farrier you may make you know x amount of dollars every week but you know you have to buy things as soon as that consistent on a weekly basis and how do you account for that and you know so most people don't have a really good picture and once you get a better picture of what it is you spend every month what you have to spend every month then you get a good idea of what you have to make every month And when you know that, you can say, oh, I've, you know, it's the 21st of the month. I've covered my nut by this three weeks. You know, I now have a month or a week where I don't have super heavy financial requirements. So I could say no to that extra work that is going to make me more fatigued or a new client or or whatever it is. And if you do it for like six months, what you do is you start to put together a really good picture of your monthly flow. And then you start to buy things with more sensibility. You know, a lot of people go like one of the killers is is eating out and and sugary drinks. You know, like what do you see people? They come out with these big giant, you know, big gulps from 7-Eleven or, or Monster or those drinks. Those are fantastically expensive. And I had a, I was helping someone like a friend and I'm like, okay, I I want you to pay with a credit card every drink that you buy. And he could not believe what it cost him at at the end of a month. Oh my goodness. And so then you're working, then you're chasing, right? You're throwing good money after bad. And when you're throwing good money after bad and at the end of every month, when you're either in the hole or at the level, then you push yourself to work more and more. So, but we're not taught this, right? Equine professionals are not taught how to be business people, right? If you're a farrier, you're a business owner. If you're a trainer, you're a business owner. You're self-employed, you're a business owner, you're your own corporation. But nobody knows how to do these things. So I know that sounds really boring and not very 
you know, sports psychology sexy, but it's one of the basics that people avoid and they avoid it because they haven't been taught. They're not good at it and it's uncomfortable. Right. So that's the first place. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, and just like you were saying, like, I was a teacher for 10 years, I never thought I would own my own business. So it was definitely a learning curve, just figuring out, like, what do I need to buy? How much am I buying a month? Like, I don't need I don't want to run out of things and show up to a horse and not have what I need. And yeah, it's, it's definitely something a bit of an adjustment. So I love that, that, you know, once you have that idea of how much you need to be spending, you're not constantly trying to chase after that next source of income. Yeah. Yeah. I had a really good friend in graduate school and she was uh, a neighbor and an attorney and made, and this is in LA, she made a ton of money. And she said that when she put herself on a budget, she actually had more money at the end of every month. And I didn't believe her until I actually did it. And there are tons of programs like Quicken. There's a you know $50 version of Quicken and you can create a monthly budget, you know? And it's really not that complicated, but it's really not in our wheelhouse as horse professionals to think that way. You know, we're like, I'm good at shoeing or I'm good at trimming. I don't need to think about the other stuff. Well, either you need to think about it or you need to hire somebody to think about it for you. Right. And I know, I mean, the two people that I talked to that are also going to be in this episode, like, you know, there are two examples of people who've already got to that point of burnout. And, yeah, you know, so once you get there, is there like a point of no return where it's like, you just have to leave the industry? <laughs> or like, how do you recover? You know? <laughs> okay, we're okay. So now that I've talked about some of the technicalities, you know, so the psychology of burnout is really our inability to say no. So we have this, yes, 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 gotta, 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 more, 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 never enough, never enough, you know, chasing, chasing, chasing. That is the, that's the, the sort of psychological underpinnings of our current culture, which is, you know, like, go, go, go. I, d- I don't know how old you are, but I'm a, I'm Gen X. So when I was growing up, we didn't have the 24-7 type of technology. We had what I call forced recovery. Like I came home from school at three o'clock. And I had nothing to do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there were cable, cable television was just sort of hitting the map. Right. So I had most of my life, I had, you know, whatever the 10 channels, then cable hits. And so then you have 20 channels, not 2000. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. You know, you rode your bike over to your friend's house or, you know, whatever, and you hung out. So it wasn't the constant barrage and assault of information technology stuff to do things to to distract you there was no downtime so what we really really need and what our bodies minds every piece of us needs is downtime now what people get stuck in is that they think that downtime is hours and hours or days and days or weeks and weeks and you know i talk about getting micro bursts of recovery you know you need pieces of recovery throughout your day and it can come in many different forms. It can come in the form of an energy bar, something that's somewhat healthy, some type of hydration that isn't packed with sugar or caffeine, movement, right? Exercise, like farriers are, are very physically active, but it's that's not exercise. Right. And it doesn't create a whole balanced picture of taking care of your body. But when you're tired, you know, you don't, you don't feel like doing it. But if you did it, 
then you'd have more energy, better energy, cleaner energy, a fitter body, better, you know, like the farrier position of back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, (laughs) getting, you know, all the injuries. There's, There's a lot of soft tissue to really manage very carefully, especially as a young farrier, to make sure that you can have a long career. Because let's say you, you do your work for 20 years, then you're 40 and your body gives out and you have no training and nothing else to do. What do you do? Right. Right. So we don't have a model for self-care. So burnout and compassion fatigue both have embedded in their definitions a failure of self-care. And because it's not like culturally there, you have to force yourself to do it. You have to make it a priority. You have to say this is not negotiable. The way that I take care of myself is not negotiable. And, you know, really, quite honestly, I have not met anyone who I have given this advice to who has actually taken it. Oh, I'll be okay. Uh, You know, because, because the body, the human body is like crazy, ridiculously resilient. You know, we can take a mess of stuff and get up and keep going. And I mean, look at what, like, this is the most horrific example possible. But if you think about it, there were people, human beings who lived in concentration camps through the Holocaust for years with no food and no water under heavy duress, both physically and emotionally and survived it. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy what the human body can take. Look at what you've taken. I look at my farrier. I have a fantastic farrier. And he's just kind of crap out of his body and he's young, you know, and, and he's great. And he tries, you know, he really does try, but you know, if you get that call, you get this new barn and it's, you know, good money. And, you know, how do you say no? It's hard. Right. Yeah. So is there a tipping point? Is there a point of no return? You know, how do you recover once you've entered the phase of burnout? The problem with that is that in order to recover from burnout, there's there's only a couple of options. One is you have some type of catastrophic health crisis. So you have a heart attack. You you know you break something. You have you develop some type of autoimmune metabolic issue that creates a physical problem that prevents you from being able to work. Right. So that's crisis. One, that's a physical tipping point. And so that is critical and you can't ignore that. Right. You know, in the business world, it was like a heart attack. That was like the big deal in the, you know, the early 2000s. Was, oh, my God, he had a heart attack. Yeah. You know, another one. What happens, what, what I've seen in the horse world and with farriers is that their their quality just starts to decline. And because it's not a sharp fall off like a heart attack, you're, you just get you know, you're, you're tired. And when you're tired, your brain works less effectively. And then you don't see things as well. And then you don't have the energy to care as much. You just honestly don't have the energy to care as much. And so your work quality declines, but it's very, very hard to see that because your brain is not going to want to go, Hey dude, you're sucking right now. Uh, You're not getting enough sleep. You're not eating right. You have zero balance in your life. You have too many clients. You never say no. And as a result, the bandwidth in your body, mind, and soul has increased. You can't sustain it. And your work now is showing that. So what what you see is higher turnover, keeping their clients as long, 
So they're having trouble with that. They're, the quality isn't as good. So their clients aren't as happy. They're not getting the same amount or quality of referrals. They're not getting the high quality horses. But the problem is, is that that kind of tipping point requires a type of self-awareness, self-reflection and introspection that has a very terrible answer. Oh my gosh, my turnover is high. My clients are not happy. I hear the same thing over and over again. I'm the common denominator. It must be me. But there's not a lot of people that have, you know, the mental, emotional or psychological strength or fitness to go, oh my gosh, I'm not doing a good job. It must be something that I'm doing wrong. Most of us go, I'm not doing a good job. You know, my clients suck. So those are, you know, this is a hard, hard, you can see why this is such a hard topic. And because it's so culturally embedded in our work, overwork, always work, it's, we're talking about it post-mortem mostly. He burnt out. She burnt out. It's too bad. They were once a good farrier. And I, you know, I wish I had a better, sexier answer other than we have to make taking care of ourselves, saying no, and finding where our balance is a priority. And I will admit to you, I struggle with the same thing, you know, as a consultant and a psychologist and someone who get I get too much demand for the time that I have and I have to say no much and I used to not say no and then I got a little burnt out and I saw that I just felt like crap and so what I did was I created a weekly here's where my appointments are here's what I can take here's what I can fill what I can afford time-wise and boom and then I, it's a structure it's not negotiable yeah And, you know, I think this is all so great. And I'm sure that there are going to be people who are looking for more resources or something, whether they can either, if you have more room, I know you just mentioned that, but, you know, do like a consultation with you or if you have resources that are already out there that people can refer to, um, is there somewhere they can go for that? That's a super great question because the resources are quite thin. I am currently working on an online course for horse professionals, creating balance in their professional world. I'm hoping that I will have that ready in the next couple of months. But until then, what you can do is you can read about the symptoms that you have. So look to see like if you search burnout on any search engine. A bunch of different stuff will come up and like psychology today, like you can search compassion fatigue, you can search burnout and you'll, uh, an article will pop up and say, here's, here's the definition, here are the symptoms, here are the ways to treat it. And so a lot of the stuff, because it's self-care, it's self. And my biggest piece of advice is small changes right? So you're starting to feel some burnout. You're starting to feel some compassion fatigue, which compassion fatigue is basically a function of empathy. So compassion fatigue has similar symptomatology as burnout, but it has a much more emotional cost because it stems from the empathy piece, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. So, you know, resources are tough right now, and it's mostly because what we need is a shift in culture. You know, we need we need clients. You know, farriers need clients. We aren't going to text them at 10.30 at night and say, get over here, my horse lost a shoe. But my horse lost a shoe at 9 o'clock this morning. I'm just getting around to texting you at 10.30 at night. But I really need it tacked on by tomorrow or you're fired. You know, like the, the, the 
as a horse professional, figuring out how to set boundaries with your clients, that's a whole nother story. But, you know, it's hard. Clients want it now and farriers want to make as much money as they can. So that, that plus that equals yes all the time instead of no, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that, that leads up to my last question is that, do you have any last minute tips for horse owners for the helping the professionals in their life to not get burnt out? And also, you know, any last minute tips for professionals who might be starting to feel this? So as a client, like I'm a client and I am mindful of all of the people that I call upon for my horse care needs, right? I do have my vet's cell phone number, but I would never text her after 7 p.m. unless it was an emergency. I would next never text her before 8 a.m. unless it was an emergency. And now that's mostly I set my own boundaries because that's how I feel about my work, you know, like, but we need to be mindful and start to think about each other, you know, uh, and, and how this impacts other people, how our requests impact other people. And also that our farriers have very full, busy lives. And we cannot, like, if I call my farrier and say, I've got 20 horses with you, I take precedence over that person who only has two horses with you, get your butt over here now. I'm impacting a whole chain of events. Right. And, and that's not really fair. And most people don't consider that. So start to think about, hey, if I've got an issue, is it, is it you know, red light, yellow light, green light? Is it really, you know, what grade issue is this? Do, you know, if, if I need a shoe tacked on and he's supposed to be here in two days, can the horse make it for two days? What type of desperation are you? Because, you know, you're going to call your farrier at some point and he's going to be like, I'm out. <laughs> you call me too much you know, with things that are not that important. And so it's looking for that balance also in your request making and as the farrier saying, okay, here's my response time. Here's what's realistic in my response time for this issue. You know, you have a horse that twisted a shoe and a nail went up into the sensitive sole. I'm on my way. Right. You know, your horse lost a shoe, has a pretty good foot, can make it for 48 hours. I'll be there in 48 hours. So it's, it's looking at, at, you know, what level of crisis is this? And if it's not a crisis, then have some compassion for your farrier so that they can take care of what they need to take care of because they have bills to pay and, you know, children to return home to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then did you have any last minute tips for professionals as we kind of wrap up? Yeah. So can you make a 5% change in your schedule. So say no 5% more of the time. Because we think you know, a lot of us go into change or, or restructure like it's all or nothing. And if you change your schedule in a, fi- in a way that it impacts your energy, your time, your recovery, your overall sense of well-being, 5%, that's actually pretty huge. You know, so if you have 20 clients a day, instead of doing 20, you do, you know, 17 or 18, then that's a couple ticks less, but it adds up over time. It adds up financially, but, you know, 
let's say you make all this money, you spend all this money because you don't have a budget. And then in 20 years, your back is shot, your brain is shot, your adrenals are gone, and you can't work anyway. It's not going to do you any good. So, so start to think a little bit longer term. You know, we saw this with athletes, professional athletes suffered from this greatly until players associations developed, especially in, you know, the professional leagues. You know, football players would retire after making millions of dollars a year and have never considered their life beyond football. Have you considered your life beyond your career as a farrier? Because you don't really see 60, 70 year old farriers. Your body just can't take it. Yeah. So start. So pull back gain some perspective, make a couple of small changes and do them over time and and see if that can give you a little bit of a burst, a little bit more energy, a little bit, a tiny bit more quality of life. That's going to stave off burnout for sure for a while, if not for forever. Yeah. Awesome. And this has been so great. I mean, even for me, the advice is, is really helpful and, you know, I'm, I'm already coming off a career that I kind of burned out, out of, um, mm-hmm. and I don't want that to happen here. So this has been just a good, a good start to really think about where I can make changes. So thank you so much. No, you're welcome. I, you know, and I, I really appreciate someone who is a farrier, who is a health care professional giving a hoot about this. This is really hard. It's so hard. And I have so much compassion for people in the horse industry because it is, it is such a difficult survival model. (laughs) And so I will keep saying this to whoever will hear. So I, I appreciate you putting this as something of importance and uh, you know, maybe there are some more ways we can hook up to help. But the first is the awareness and the, okay, I need to make a change. And it doesn't have to be giant. I also wanted the perspective of hoof care professionals who have dealt with burnout and compassion fatigue. So I spoke with two farriers who generously offered their time to chat with me. Kendra Skorstad, a farrier out of Wisconsin, talked with me about her experiences and tips for burnout. Actually, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in hoof care? Yeah. So I grew up with horses. I grew up competing and trail riding and having fun just doing what kids do with horses. And, uh, later in high school, I, um, was trying to figure out what a career path was going to look like and veterinary school sounded interesting, but it wasn't really for me. So our farrier at the time had said that I should go to farrier school. And I actually kind of thought he was joking, but then I started to really think about it and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And so, so I did. So I went to farrier school and learned a lot, learned a lot about what I didn't know. <laughs> uh, and so did that and apprenticed with some local guys. And then I decided to set the hammer down because I didn't feel like I knew enough about the foot. So I kind of went down the barefoot rabbit hole. And then I realized I didn't know enough about the horse. So I did a bunch of courses on continuing ed, learning about the body and how it works and all that. And then, um, kind of came full circle and came back to shoeing and worked with some of the best in the industry. Cause if I was going to do it again, I wanted to do it better than the way I was doing it the first time. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And that's, it's ever evolving. I'm still learning. That's awesome. And, uh, so today 
you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about burnout and burnout in the hoof care industry, obviously, specifically, but I think it applies to any kind of professional or non-professional, um, you know, path. So can you tell us a little bit about what burnout is or how someone might recognize that they're getting burnt out? So I've gone through it a couple times in my career and I've been at it um, about 17 years now. And so a lot of this is coming from personal experience. I can't say I've done a ton of digging on it, but after you and I connected, I, I thought, you know, Hey, a Google search to see what people are saying about this and, you know, some of the keywords around it and how that aligned with how I felt uh, would be helpful. So when I started to do a little bit of digging into what burnout was, um, I, I found that it's chronic stress, right? Whether it's physical, mental, emotional, and you feel you're unable to cope. It's putting others first before yourself too many times. It's exhaustion that just doesn't get better when you sleep. You become super cynical, negative, angry, frustrated about work or other things in life. I would even say that compassion fatigue falls into that being overcommitted while also feeling fairly apathetic about work and then feeling really isolated or lonely and not being motivated despite having a super full plate. So how did you become knowledgeable about burnout or aware of burnout in your own life? For me, it was it was a little bit of frustration. I I felt super alone. I felt super isolated. And and the work can be, you know, we don't work alongside other farriers all day long. You know, sometimes it's just us and the horse and maybe a handler. So I, I was feeling super isolated. And then I was feeling frustrated because I couldn't get, you know, to where I wanted the horses to be. And I was really frustrated that I didn't have the education to be able to get them further along. And so that's, that's where it started for me. And so earlier on in my career, that was where I kind of hit this burnout where I was feeling really alone and feeling really isolated and feeling like I was working my butt off and either not getting enough financially or not really getting the improvement that I wanted to be seeing in the horses. So it was kind of multifold for me. And then later, I would say in the last few years, I, it just became chronic exhaustion. I just, I could never get enough sleep. I was always overcommitted, super short-tempered with everything. I found for myself that I was venting with colleagues more than I was troubleshooting and problem solving. And that to me just ended up being a really red flag. I feel like it's important to be able to vent, but also to have constructive conversations where we can work to find solutions to the problems that we're having. Right. And so for you personally, what did you do? Like what steps did you take in order to help, you know, kind of mitigate getting further into that burnout or like totally just, you know, leaving the career altogether? I have seriously considered leaving being a farrier uh, several times. Um, for me, you know, when, when life says, Hey, you should slow down, you're a little burnout and you don't listen. Sometimes the world just, you know, sets you down and says, you're going to listen now. So I had an accident last August and left me with a pretty severe concussion. And it changed my, it changed my life. Like there was no way I could keep doing what I was doing. I had to cut back. There was zero choice about that. I literally couldn't work. And so I took that as a massive wake up call that 
it needed to change. And of course, there's always that fear. Can I, can I even afford to slow down? Can I afford to do it differently? And so as I went along, not having a choice, being forced to slow down and reduce my workload, it gave me an opportunity to see that I, I could actually survive and live and do well on the income that I was able to bring in. I work with my husband, and so he was able to keep the ball rolling. I couldn't have done this without him. So yeah, for me, it was an accident that said, you're going to make a change whether you like it or not. And I'm kind of grateful it had happened because I feel like I'm in a much better place now. I'm a lot less stressed. I'm a lot happier, not nearly as cranky. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, we don't want to wish on ourselves something that's going to like force us to slow down. So, you know, what can someone do if they notice this to try to, you know, help themselves come back from that brink of, you know, leaving their career over this burnout feeling? Do you have any tips for other pros? Yeah, I think, I think that anybody could take this and walk away with it and do something with it. But I really think about our field and how it's so different from so many others. And I would say first and foremost, set up a business and financial plan so that you can manage that in a way that allows you then to work with clients that help you meet that plan. So I would say that that's first and foremost, because money stresses, it's a, it's a real thing. And um, whether it's being afraid of, you know, not having enough or not making enough, Either way, I feel like uh, that's really important. I would say that be gentle with yourself, have a little compassion, have a little acceptance for yourself because it's hard work what we're going through and build a community of people around you so you don't feel isolated and you can feel supported and heard. I think those are really important things. Setting boundaries is also really important. I think so often, especially for people starting out in the career field, in this career field that we don't set boundaries well enough and we take on a lot of clients because we're trying to make a living, you know, and we're trying to do something that we're excited about uh, and put into action the things that we've learned. So I think setting boundaries are really important uh, and those boundaries can feel impossible to, to overcome. And so start small, like boundaries can be flexible. It might just be turning your phone off or turning it on silent you know, at the end of the business day until the next business day and really setting aside work time and personal time, you know, and setting those kinds of boundaries. I had a hard time with that actually, because it left me feeling like I wasn't, I wasn't taking care of my clients and that was important to me. So I set up auto responses for my messages so that at least they got something and knew their message was received but that it would take me a day to get back to them. And that felt really good for me. I worked on, and I would say this for everybody else, uh, shore up how to say the word no. (laughs) It's the hardest word to say uh, for someone like me who is a people pleaser, a problem fixer. I, I never say no. And so it's a really hard word to say. And so that is super important. Stop agreeing to work you don't have time for or working on difficult horses or dangerous horses or for people that don't pay well, um, getting really clear on your expectations of how this business should run and saying no to anything that doesn't fit that is really important. Yeah. And making time for yourself. 
I kind of live by the, you know, work to live, not live to work. Uh, that's me, you know, I want to be able to enjoy my job and then I want to be able to go enjoy my life. And I, I don't want to just be here to, to work. That's just not who I am. Yeah. And I definitely, I mean, all the things that you mentioned, I'm thinking like, I need to work on that. I need to work on that. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard in this business. Cause like you said, like we care so much about the horses. We care so much about the owners and it is, it's hard for me to, to not be there for owners all the time. And yeah, but you know, that can, at least for me, that can be exhausting at times, especially in like a really difficult case where there's, you know, you want to help and you're trying and, it's a lot of your time and energy. And on like the flip side, I didn't know if you had any, you know, advice for owners to help us <laughs> to not become burnt out. Because honestly, I think, you know, how the owners interact with us does play a role in our stress levels and in how we feel about the job that we're doing. So I didn't know if you had any sort of, you know, advice in terms of their interactions with us? Totally. I think that if more owners could have a basic education on facts, not hearsay, not if they could have a better understanding of the foot and the distal limb and how it works, maybe even pick up a rasp once or twice so they can appreciate what we do. I think it would help for us to be able to have better conversations, more valuable conversations about what we're trying to accomplish for those horses. I think that a little bit of appreciation and compassion and empathy goes a really long way when the client can understand where we're coming from. You know, appreciation can come in a lot of forms and honest to gosh, a simple thank you or let you know that the horse is doing great, <laughs> feels great. There's days where I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know if that horse walked off. Okay. I mean, like I know that he walked off. Okay. But then did he go to the ring two hours later and tank it or did he do awesome? And I don't ever get that feedback. Um, I do now my clients are phenomenal, but I feel like that's really important is to share your appreciation for your fairy and let them know, Hey, the horse is doing great. Thanks. Great job. It's sometimes those little things go a really long way. And I know that everybody says this, but I feel like not everybody gets this. Uh, I work with a lot of sport horses, but they're horses. They're not machines. And when we understand that we all have good days, we all have bad days, and everybody just takes a breath and realizes the horse might be just having like an off day. I think that, you know, that's helpful for not placing unnecessary blame. Yeah, absolutely. And that we can't fix everything. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, putting that pressure on us to fix everything is not going to fix everything. <laughs> right, right. You know, so. Another important topic not often talked about is compassion fatigue, which involves absorbing emotional stresses from others and wearing yourself down emotionally to the point of indifference. I think many of us can think of a case that caused us so much stress and emotional grief that we became less invested in future cases. Sydney Cotto has brought up this topic for the American Farriers Journal, as well as pushed for roundtable events at the International Hoof Care Summit to make sure there is more awareness on this topic. She talked to me about how she became passionate about it and ways we can deal with it. 
this is something that our industry doesn't talk about. And just in the last few years, I've really been mentioning it a lot in comments and people are like, oh my gosh, me too. Right. Because we don't, you know, we talk about, oh, our back hurts or, you know, whatever, but not, you know, not about mental symptoms, but what we go through. Right. Right. Yeah. So, all right, cool. So, um, why don't we get started? And uh, I actually don't even know this story, but can you tell us about how you got into hoof care? Oh, okay. Um, so I grew up watching my mom's best friend, um, shoe horses. She was a woman farrier, which was extremely rare back in, you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties for, you know, a woman farrier to be around. You know, we know a few that are, have been around that long, but not um, that long. And so, um, you know, I always loved horses and I was always the first to volunteer to hold horses. And, um, I think I was about 13 or 14 and, uh, my dad would volunteer and mow the lawn at the local homestead. It's a historical site called John Park Homestead in Ontario in Canada. And, um, they asked us, they said, since you guys volunteer here, would you guys like to come do this little clinic? And it was a, a forging clinic. And I was like, sure, absolutely. Cause that was always one of my favorite things was watch the man that always forged in the homestead. And so we went and that kind of, you know, started the ball rolling there. And, uh, mom said, you know, you got to go to university. So after that, I wanted to be a vet, went to university of Guelph, changed my major, did equine science instead. And, uh, got out of that. Uh, but I still wanted to shoe horses. And so I, you know, said, sorry, mom, <laughs> I didn't go enough shoe horses. And bless my mom's heart. She never, and, and dad too, you know, they never said no, they, you know, encouraged me to go whichever way I wanted. But I know my mom watched her friend, you know, shooting horses and getting beat up and stuff like that. So she was kind of discouraged, but um, that's how that went. So I uh, went to Oklahoma Horseshoeing School in uh, 2011 and uh, I was, I was trimming for a year before that though. Um, and I did that and it's just kind of snowballed out of control from there. <laughs> cool. <laughs> like all of us, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, right. And today's topic is compassion fatigue, which, as you said, like isn't talked about a lot in our industry. So before we even get talking about it, can you give us like a definition of compassion fatigue? Sure. So compassion fatigue is the preoccupation with absorbing trauma and emotional stresses from others. So basically it creates like a secondary trauma in you. So it could be seeing for people who work in the ER, it could be seeing people hurt. It could be for a pediatric nurse seeing children that are you know, sick, dying, whatever. Um, and in hoof care, it's, you know, we see these people that have these horses that are injured and they're so worried about them. It may have been, you know, like their hard horse that they love their whole life trying to keep alive. And basically through that, you know, we sit there and say, it's okay. It's all right. I'll try and help. Let's get this team together. Let's try and help this horse. And through that, we end up prolonging exposure to listening to traumatic events, right? Which is what it would be like in an ER nurse or doctor or, you know, any kind of nurse or doctor that's dealing with traumatic things is you, you kind of try and help them by taking some of the stress off, right? Like emotionally. And then, you know, physically through our work, we do that obviously because we're shooing horses and doing um, different things with them and helping vets treat them, right? Rehab stuff more so than someone who's just, you know, throwing plates on a horse for a trail ride or someone who's not doing any therapeutic work, not, you know, aside from like, you know, the odd bar shoot or something like that. Cause I know there are people who specialize, you know, just in founder or just in navicular or whatever they're doing. And it's usually, you know, with really lame horses that they're trying, you know, you're the last ditch effort. Yeah. And can you explain, cause like, I know a lot of us will talk about like, Oh, I'm feeling burnt out. Can you explain how compassion fatigue might be different than burnout? Mm-hmm. So compassion fatigue again is the 
preoccupation with absorbing the trauma and emotional stresses, right? So then it creates secondary stress in us. Burnout is the reaction to prolonged stress. So usually it's exhaustion. You kind of get, you know, cynical. And then eventually it turns into, I don't want to work. I don't really care. I'm just going to throw these shoes on this horse. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a million dollar horse. It's not like stuff like that. So it basically turns into a state of emotional, physical exhaustion. Right. And it's in, and stress comes in all different ways. So it could be something at home, like, so something at home is going wrong and your work is taking away from your time at home, or it could be, you're doing too many horses for too little money. And so at the end of the week, you still got too much month at the end of the money. A lot of, all of us have been there. I'd say that at some point. And basically it's, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed emotionally during unable to meet the demands of your job or unable to meet the demands of life at home, whatever that is. You know, so that's that's the two separate things. It's just you can have burnout caused by compassion fatigue, but you can't have compassion fatigue caused by burnout. Does that make any sense? Right, right. And so, you know, how did you become aware of compassion fatigue or knowledgeable in it? So I think as healthcare professionals, and I've said this dozens of times, I said, when we talk about compassion fatigue, we give the definition and then I say, you can pinpoint the single case or single horse or single account that caused your compassion fatigue. And every single farrier says, I know which one that is. That's so-and-so. For me, it was, uh, I'm, I'm going to use the name uh, Fluffy. And um, Fluffy was so badly foundered. And he wasn't so bad when I first got to him. But it was the vet that the lady was using just contraindicated everything. And so it was... In the end, it turned into the lady was keeping the horse alive basically because it was like her last link to her mother because her mother had bred this horse and gave it to her as a gift, mm. right? When she died, because it was her mom's horse. And then when her mom was dying, her mom said, here, you take Fluffy. This is, you know, your horse now. And so the lady was like, oh, no, he's eating. He's standing upright. He's fine. Which horse people know, horses eat. I mean, they're colic, they have a twisted gut and they still eat. And so this lady was gauging how happy this horse was that he was still trying to get up every day and still trying to eat. Even though his feet, like, I mean, he had in the end, I think probably 20% of his coffin but left. It was bad. He had bed sores all over him. The vet would just say, oh, we'll try this. We'll keep trying this. We'll keep trying this. And here's us healthcare professionals going, this thing needs to be put down. Stop telling her that. So anyways, when we talk about that, so I had always had that story in the back of my mind. And when that horse, the lady finally out of the blue said, you don't have to do Fluffy's feet anymore. We put him down. And I was like, oh my gosh, no kidding. And it, this whole cloud is lifted off of me. But still for every single case after that, when an owner had a horse that was you know, pretty bad, that had a grim prognosis, I was just kind of like, well, he might live. He might die. We'll try. You know, my, my total compassion and heart just was guarded. It was never in that situation as hard as it was before. Right. right. And so um, when I started talking about it was me and another farrier, we were driving back to the healthcare summit. And she said to me, I have to stop and do this horse. Can you help me? She says, I really need your opinion. And the whole healthcare summit, all she did was fret about this horse and fret about this horse. Cause she says, I know this is wrong. I know this horse needs to be put down. We've done a tenotomy on it. You know, we do radiographs every single time I do this thing's feet. I charge her, you know, like almost a thousand dollars every time I come. So it was not like she was undercharging. It wasn't like she was, you know, not doing everything possible. They had done it. This horse had been, you know, to different vets. And so it come down to is, you know, the lady's husband had died and she was keeping the horse alive, you know, because she had to have something to take care of because she took care of the stepbusband for so long. These seem to be these cases that, you know, turn into that is when the owner just, you know, 
keeps trying and there's like nothing left they can do. Right. Which is a whole nother topic on that. (laughs) But, um, so anyways, we went there and we did this horse and the lady looks at me and she's like, what would you do? And I had already been through this trauma with my fluffy that I do. And I looked at her and I said, I don't think it is fair to ask this other farrier to take care of this horse anymore because this horse can barely stand. There's nothing left on radiographs that we can do. There's no going back from here. There's only going down. You've, you know, won the battle, but you've lost the war. You would fix one thing that would break down, but in the end, you know, you're, you're going to lose the war. And, and it's, you know, it wasn't fair to my friend anymore that was chewing this horse. And I told her, I said, you know, you just kind of got to cut ties because it was very emotionally draining. And so that's when we started talking about it, about possibly getting like a round table in at Summit every year about it. Because once you pick it up and you recognize it and you explain it, every single farrier out there says, yeah, I've had that. Yeah, I've done that. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I mean, I can definitely pinpoint a case. And after yep. that, and I feel like sometimes I feel bad, but there are times when I look at a horse and I'm like, I don't know that I can put like emotional energy into this, you right. know, and I mean, I'm assuming that's sort of the same thing that you're talking about where it's just, you know, before this one case, um, I was like a, a, putting a hundred percent into like every horse. And I just like mm-hmm. put all my, you know, mental, physical, emotional energy into working on these cases. And now I'm like, I don't know that I want to, you know, try to yeah put as much emotion into it. It's, it's just not gonna, you know, we'll just do what we can, but Right. And you always like you're guarded after that for every single case. You can never go back to that point. Yeah, definitely like an emotional disconnect, Mm -hmm. you know. Absolutely. So, yeah, this I mean, this is something that I'm still learning about. So it's really cool to be able to talk to you about it. So then my next question is, you know, what can we do if we're we've gone past that point of having a case where now we have this compassion fatigue? How do we deal with that? So. First, I want to talk about it because to know how to deal with it, you have to know you have a problem. And I'll give you a little bit about my background because I'm not a psychiatrist or um, a therapist by any means. But I've gone through some some stuff in my life because um, I grew up with two alcoholic parents. And so through that, when they recovered, I learned coping mechanisms could be like self-medicating. So self-medicating goes into, you know, you're drinking because... And again, like I said, I'm not psychiatrist or anything like that, but I understand that like alcoholism, because I grew up with alcoholic parents, is not the consumption of alcohol, but it is the mindset behind it, right? It's a coping mechanism for something that's going on in your life. And so that's why it does not matter if somebody drinks, you know, 10 beers or if they have one beer, they can still be an alcoholic, right? right. Um, so that could be, you know, drinking drugs, food, you know, sit down at night, you feel terrible at the end of the day. And you're like, man, I'm just going to treat myself to an ice cream cone. We've all done that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it avoids, you know, it's like, again, it takes the feeling of being helpless and powerless away. Um, and then you can get like dissociating. So with us farriers, we start ignoring the phone, you know, we, we stop wanting to talk to clients, you know, because usually the farriers burnt out from people calling that have terrible cases, terrible horses, terrible owners, but that goes into dissociation. And then you can get projection. So you can get defensive behaviors. So I'm going to put this in terms of farrier. You might hear, I'm not the problem. You're the problem, you know, but that's kind of when it goes into you empty your emotions on other people. Right. And that's a defense mechanism because that's fear, right? You're trying to guard yourself from fear. Um, And then, you know, denial. So that could be ignoring something saying, well, I didn't do that, you know, goes on and on. So then good coping mechanisms, you know, healthy coping mechanisms could be, um, that's basically investing your own conscious efforts to solve the problems and to tolerate 
tolerate or minimize stress. So basically you said, I know this is a problem in my life and I'm going to, instead of trying to drink, ignore, be angry, project my anger, I'm going to try to help deal with that in a different or more healthy way. So like a lot of people go into like humor. So like, you know, we all know we have like the farrier, funny farrier memes that people post on Facebook, but you know, that's a good way. And some of them are kind of in a way that, you know, we're kind of poking fun at clients, but I think that's a lot of farrier's ways of um, dealing with the kind of bad parts of our job. I love going to ride with other farriers. I think that clears my mind. I'll get out. I get to see the horses that they do. I get to see the barns that they're in. Sometimes I go, oh gosh, I'd never work there. And sometimes I'm like, man, this is the kind of barn I want in my books. What do I have to do to get there? And it drives me. And then also talking to them about their crappy horses and their crappy cases, and then talking about their good horses and good cases. You know, what's your favorite horse? What's your favorite client? I mean, I can think of some of mine personally that like I absolutely adore because everything that I talk about and I hand them, they will read, they will do. The horses are in fabulous shape. I love seeing them. They tip me. They, you know, have the horses caught, horses tied, or the horses are behaved. It's just a wonderful place to be. And then establishing boundaries, I think, is the most important thing. So one of my fairy friends, she said this the best. She said, no, it is a complete sentence. It does not need any explanation. If you don't agree with how the horse is being treated or anything like that, you can say, no, that does not fit within my business model. No, I don't have time. No, my schedule's full. I know on some of the Facebook pages, having like a new intake form mm-hmm. that'll help you screen clients so you can potentially kind of weed out the funky ones. Like I had a lady call me yesterday and I sent her the new client intake form. And right away I said, I don't want her as a new client because when I asked the question, what was your schedule you had your horses on before? And she said, I got them trimmed once a year. And so right there, I said, that doesn't fit my business model. That just saved me from going there. That's not the kind of horses that I want in my business. And that's not the kind of clients that I want referring other kinds of clients like that. Right. Right. So, and then firing, firing or dropping accounts that make you miserable. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the best things I ever said was in a text. I had this client that I've been working for for a few years They were really, really nice until I couldn't meet their instant demand and they got really nasty. And the best thing I ever said to them was, I think it is best you find a new farrier. Yeah. And that was all that was said. They sent angry texts after that and I never even replied to them. And then taking time off or having hobbies. I'll say that my uh, grandpa, Grandpa Clark wrote a book and in his book, he said, I knew men that didn't have hobbies and they all died young. And I believe that the man built um, N scale model trains until the day he died at 90 something years old and that was his hobby and so if you can't afford time off for your hobbies you need to charge more work less schedule vacations or have like a set time that you work from like you know say i do like nine to five and then i get home and i get to spend time with my husband and my daughter right or forge or i might take a friday off because there's gonna be a clinic you know stuff like that oh and it's never shameful to go to a therapist or psychiatrist for help yeah definitely talking to somebody and like a professional can give you a lot more insight than just, you know, a bunch of us other farriers that are just going like, yeah, that counts an a-hole. Because <laughs> I think they have a lot more insight than the rest of us farriers that would just tell, you know, just fire them. Right. And I think it's good to like normalize going to talk to someone. Like it's not a, oh yeah, it's it's a good thing and it's helpful. Even if you're like, even if you feel pretty good, <laughs> like go, yeah. and, you know, talk to a therapist, talk to a psychologist and have them, you know, work through things so you don't get to a point where you're like, I need serious help, you know? Right. And I, I just want to say for anybody out there that has never heard it, nobody gets out of life unscathed mentally or physically. 
in some way. (laughs) So you're not, you're not alone. I mean, everybody's had some sort of trauma and, and, you know, just because someone's might've been worse doesn't mean that yours is invalid, you know? And, and you know, like I said, it could have been caused by something that happened in your childhood. It could have been something that happened as you got older. It could have been something in your professional job. I mean, man, it's, there's, there's no shame in ever seeking help for anything because, you know, just going through life and trying to deal with it just makes a miserable life. And it, all it does is create the next cycle for, you know, like if you have kids, all they have to do is just deal with your trauma that you dealt with because you didn't deal with it. Now it's on them too. And it's, you know, they say like it's trauma generational, right? Right. Yeah. Just have, like, you answered the next question already about tips for pros. So um, I guess my last question <laughs> yeah. is, do you have like a, like a call to action to owners to help professionals who might be, you know, to, to help prevent us from getting burnt out or getting compassion fatigue? I would say like the biggest thing that an owner could ask is not what your farrier can do for you, but what you can do for your farrier. That is something that is never hardly asked. What can I do to make your visits better? What can I do to make your my horses better? What can I do to make my stop better? Right? Because I think we have a lot more clients. I've got one. I absolutely adore her. She's just starting up her therapeutic riding center. And I hope she listens to this because I know she knew we were talking. We talked about compassion fatigue. She's a nurse. And, you know, the more that she's gotten horses because she started out kind of as a beginner. You know, they bought this farm. She started out as kind of a beginner. And every time I see her, they've gotten more riding lessons, more clinics, more, you know, better tack, trying to always better the horses. What can I do for their feet? Every single time I get there, she says, what can I put on their feet? Diet change. Who needs this? Who needs that? She says, why is this one's feet doing this? Why is this one's coat doing this? What can I do? Having a client ask a farrier, what can I do to make your visits better what can i do to make my horse's feet you know it's always about the horse or the owner what can i do to make my horse's feet better what can i do to you know improve the horse what can i do it's never you know how would you like them held you know would you like them tied would you like them this would you like better lights would you you know it doesn't have to be money it has to be um i would say 90 percent of the time you could get a farrier if you paid you had your horses caught had them clean and you had a flat clean dry place to shoe them right right i mean heck i'll, I'll do a lot of things but you know, the, the horse behaving and the people paying are number one above anything. Right. Right. And then everything else is everything else is bonus. Overall, I think burnout and compassion fatigue are important issues in all walks of life. But in the hoof care world, professionals should be taking steps to prevent it. And owners should be considering how they can better interact with their farriers and hoof care providers, which helps us not to get to that point. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.